Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med en af Dagbladets Informations helt store helte, helt store intellektuelle og aktivistiske forbilleder, den amerikanske forfatter Rebecca Solnit. Rebecca Solnit er født i 1961. Hun er måske mest kendt for sin bog Man Explain Things To Me fra 2014, som er den bog, der gav oprindelse til begrebet mansplaining. Hun fortæller i bogen, hvordan hun til et middagsselskab møder en mand, der spørger, hvad hun laver. Så siger hun, hun er forfatter og fortæller, hvad hun har skrevet en bog om. Derefter overtager manden samtalen, fordi han har læst en bog om det samme tema. Eller det vil sige, at han har ikke læst den. Han har læst en anmeldelse af bogen. Og derfor synes han, at han er eksperten, der skal belære hende, og hun må være den dydige elev i hans lille klasselokale. Pointen er, at det faktisk er hendes bog, han har læst en anmeldelse af, men han gør så ikke den anstrengelse til at finde ud af, at han faktisk sidder over for forfatteren. Den episode bliver anledning til, at Rebecca Solnit fortæller, i hvor mange situationer mænd naturligt føler sig som lærere og bringer kvinder i en situation, hvor de skal opføre sig som elever. Hun folder episoden ud og gør den til et billede af et mønster i bogen og kobler det også sammen med den måde, som kvinder bliver chikaneret på, den måde, som kvinder bliver udsat for sociale stigma og i sidste instans overtaget og voldtaget på. Hele det spektrum, som kvinder lever indenfor i det amerikanske samfund og i et vis omfang naturligvis også i det danske samfund. Det er en bog, som gav ophav til begrebet mansplaining, som dog ikke er et begreb, Rebecca Solnit selv er specielt begejstret for, fordi hun synes, det implicerer alle mænd. Men bogen blev ligesom en åbning og et aktivistisk håndtag for kvinder til at sige fra, og for kvinder til at redegøre for, hvad det er for en form for undertrykkelse, der finder sted i en masse tilsyneladende til forladelige samtaler mellem mænd og kvinder. Det er også en bog, som vi er mange mænd, der tror, vi er skide kloge, og ofte stiller os op som skolelærer, har lært rigtig meget af og er taknemmelig for. En anden meget, meget vigtig bog, som Rebecca Solnit har skrevet, er den, der hedder Hope in the Dark, som handler om, hvordan håbet altid er i mørket. Vi kender kun den verden, der er i lyset, men vi skal hele tiden have tillid til, at i det, vi ikke kan se, og blandt dem, vi ikke kender, dem, vi ikke har mødt endnu, der er der en masse mennesker, der arbejder på at skabe fremskridt, udveksler idéer, forbereder forskellige former for organisationer, kæmper mod undertrykkelse og for retfærdighed i deres lokalmiljø. Rebecca Solnit viser, hvordan historisk er det kræfterne fra mørket, der så at sige har skabt de store omvæltninger i verden. De er altid kommet uventet, netop fordi de var i mørket. Så os, der er, har det privilegium at have ordet og være i lyset. Vi skal altid huske på, at der sidder nogen ude i mørket og lytter og arbejder og tager vores ting videre på en måde, som vi slet ikke havde regnet med. Og det er i virkeligheden er dem, der bringer forandringerne. Det er klart, det er også vores håb for dagbladet information og for langsomme samtaler, at der sidder en masse med derude, som kan bruge det, vi laver til et eller andet, som vi ikke ved, hvad er, men som vil bringe verden fremad. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially and I think it's actually good morning to you Rebecca who's with us from San Francisco California. Yes, still morning here. Thank you so much for taking your time. You've been a great inspiration for us here at Dalbert Information. You've been a great inspiration for me personally as a writer and as a thinker, as an activist and as a way of combining all these Three, and I think you're actually one of the persons we talked about most on this show, so it's good to finally have you. An honor and a pleasure to be here. Rebecca Solnit har også skrevet bogen Recollections of My Non-Existence, som er hendes erindringer, der kom i 2020, som er en helt fantastisk historie om, hvordan hun fandt sin egen stemme og hvordan hun blev til. Jeg har i den her samtale bedt hende om til sidst at læse noget op fra bogen, så den her uges samtale slutter ikke med et spørgsmål og et svar. Den slutter med en oplæsning, der giver et eksempel på, hvor formidabel en stilist Rebecca Solnit er, og hvordan hun formår at forbinde det æstetiske med det politiske på en måde, som matcher noget, jeg ikke kender hos nogen som helst andre forfattere. Hun er fantastisk. God fornøjelse. You know, I was just in America to cover the the midterm elections and I was in Georgia because I wanted to see this Stacey Abrams campaign and I was again struck by this very interesting moment in America where you have young people that are really mobilized and energized and who seem against all odds to really believe in politics. They believe that their activism matters and that they can make a difference. And then on the other hand, we have this huge backlash against something that I, I thought should be taken for granted, women's reproductive rights and just 
basic, right? So these two positions that are both very energized and some of it is very inspirational to us here in Europe. Some of it is very scary to us. You've been part of the progressive movement, writing for it, expanding it, defining it for, for decades. How do you see this moment in America? It feels like the culmination of something that's been happening for decades, a kind of white supremacy and patriarchal domination that could take itself for granted and behave in very gentlemanly ways in previous times is now desperate and frantic. And, uh, you know, in a funny way, it feels like it's a sign that they're losing, that they're going to such extremes. And another sign of it is a successful party just wants to have everyone vote because they feel that they will win the majority. What we've seen over and over with the Republicans for decades is that decades ago, the Republicans made a fateful decision. They could either change as the country changed to become a country with more non-white people, more women involved in politics, and an overall more progressive country, or they could just try and prevent those people from voting. And they made a quite terrifying decision to just try and prevent people from voting. There was a funny response when the youth turnout was so good this year, although the youth turnout being really good means 27% of voters, I think under 25 voted. You know, you can imagine if 75 of them voted, we would be, you know, to the left of, I don't know, Costa Rica <laughs> and current day Chile. But um, when all these young people voted, uh, Republicans actually got on Twitter to say, maybe we should raise the voting age. And so they, you know, in some ways have sealed their doom, although we do have a terrifying sign that they're now recruiting voters of color and getting some Asian and Latino voters to vote with them. Black voters know that they're hated and opposed and won't. So, it, so it's a moment in which the Republican Party, which, you know, I called them gentlemanly, used to be well-dressed, used to seem normal, has take, gone to its logical extreme with the help of Donald Trump and become a far-right sort of neo-fascist party, an authoritarian party, a party that wants to suppress everyone that doesn't agree with it, a party that's positioned itself against democracy and will now openly aspire to steal elections and suppress voters. I think originally here in Denmark, something that most terrified us about Trump, I mean, not originally as a businessman, we were always terrified of him as a yuppie in the 80s and then as uh, the man making these boxing matches and then wrestling. So we were always a little terrified of him. But but I think this grabbed them by the pussy incident here was really terrifying because you thought that would in itself disqualify a candidate for a presidency. And it was like there was this violence against women that was becoming legitimate with, with Donald Trump. And I have the feeling that this time you have a lot of, of women come out, coming out against it and you have a mobilization and showing that they the reproductive rights cannot be taken away from us. And there was part of your agenda that young women who came after you might skip some of the old obstacles. How do you see the situation for women and, and the collective mobilization at this time? In a funny way, we can say the Supreme Court decision on June 24th of this year was itself a grab them by the pussy decision. It was an insistence that women should have no jurisdiction over their own bodies and that the state should have a right to interfere and control and punish women for attempting to assert this self-jurisdiction which is exactly the same logic as rape, sexual harassment, et cetera, and which is why I made that comparison. Of course, the Republicans have been threatening this and attempting this for decades. It's not shocking that they wanted to take away reproductive rights and it's been a campaign central point as an attempt to capture evangelical Christian voters and a kind of right-wing misogyny for a long time. They now finally captured it. And what's interesting, again, with politics in this country is it produced a huge backlash. It was incredibly unpopular. 
it produced some of the turnout um, by progressives and a lot of women voters, a lot of young voters. It produced four states voting specifically to protect reproductive rights. It helped produce the incredible election in Michigan where Democratic candidates, most of them women, all of them pro-abortion rights won and an abortion protection initiative also won. So it's an interesting moment where it feels like both parties, the Democrats have moved to the left in a way, which of course I think is great. The Republicans have moved to the right. There was a moment, a very long moment at which left-wingers complaining there's no difference between the two parties were not particularly accurate, but had a point. Now the difference is profound uh, when it comes to voting rights, reproductive rights, other human rights, economic justice, and of course, the most important thing in this moment, the climate. It seems to me, looking again from abroad, that actually the Democrats have learned a lesson from the Trump period, that they're not as academic in their language and they're not as academic in their approach and that there is a kind of lesson that we lost some working voters because maybe we didn't have the policies to better their lives maybe we didn't have the language to address their grievances that this is it seems to me that this is a more socially engaged uh, democratic party i know there are a lot of new liberals still so we're not talking about a socialist revolution but it seems to me that this is a more socially careful and listening democratic party that actually has moved a lot over the last years i think three things have happened i totally agree a lot of young people many of them people of color and very progressive people of whom um alexandria ocasio cortez is only the most famous have gotten involved and gotten elected. So we actually have a party that's more diverse and more progressive than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really a lot more progressive. I think the Democrats also saw that the time to be mild and try and find common ground. And I wrote a piece right after the 2020 election about the fact that we don't need to find common ground with Nazis. We don't, you know, the, the, the truth is not halfway between my truth and your lie if you're saying that, you know, Jews control the media or, you know, or some other racist or anti-Semitic nonsense if you're a climate denier, etc. So the Democrats have gotten bold almost out of desperation. But then you talked about grievances. Grievances, the Republicans only valuable commodity in a lot of ways. And one of my favorite newspaper columnist Paul Waldman wrote in the Washington Post a few years ago a wonderful column saying the problem isn't that Democrats need to do something to show rural white voters you know these kind of angry people that we respect them the problem is that the Republicans tell them at every possible opportunity that we don't respect them and no matter what the Democrats do if they're listening to Fox News and right-wing religious pundits and you know kind of right-wing social media they'll constantly being be told that we hate them we despise them we want to repress them we're trying to corrupt their children etc and so the you know the really their worldview is not shaped by actual democratic respect the democrats are so much better for poor people working people you know, economic justice, access to health care, education, um, you know, the rest. The Republicans are just very good at convincing these people in a cultural culture war way rather than by offering them anything real that, you know, the Republicans like and care about them. And of course, the Republicans like and care mostly about corporations and the extremely wealthy when you look at their policies. So you know, in a sad way, they're suckers. <laughs> I want to turn to your to your new book, Orwell's Roses. At least for us, it's, it's it's still new. Your most recent book, which is an absolutely wonderful book. I think it's such an important book. And it addresses something that we've been discussing a lot, whether we needed a new pantheon of writers, to not just to address climate crisis, but acknowledging that climate crisis is rooted in a conception of nature and it's a conception of of nature is something that we just abuse and extract. 
and that we need another way of thinking in order to heal our relationship with nature and ground ourselves in nature. And, and most of our modern writers, we tend to see them as focusing on the human drama and most of our modern political thinkers. So we've been discussing Latin, like, do we need a new canon or a new pantheon? And then we have George Orwell, uh, who is very much known for his anti-fascism and referred to all the time. And we have a very specific image of what is George Orwell. Uh, and, and then you write this book and you find something in him that I wasn't aware of before. After I read your book, I remembered some passages from 1984 that I was not aware of before, actually. But but this was this is such a brilliant move. Can you tell us about this project with George Orwell? Yeah, I never thought I would write about George Orwell because he's so well, you know, he's been so widely discussed. There's lots of books about him. There's not, it's, I assumed that everything to say about him had been said. And then on November 2nd, Day of the Dead, as we celebrate it here in Mexican, you know, influenced California, I was in England and I went to see the cottage where he had planted fruit trees and roses in 1936, thinking that I was looking for the fruit trees for my friend Sam doing a project about trees. The wonderful people who lived there invited me in, told me the fruit trees had been cut down in the 1990s, and then very casually said, oh, would you like to see Orwell's roses? And oh my God, you know, there's very few things that I would like more. <laughs> and uh, so, and then there were two things so exciting about the big straggly rose bushes still in bloom in November that they showed me. One of which is it felt like a very direct connection to George Orwell. So there were two, two, two amazing things for me. One was just this direct physical connection to Orwell. Here were living beings, even though there were plants and not people or animals, directly connected to this man who died nine years before I was born. But the other thing was I had known the essay that sent me to the cottage where he describes planting the roses and the fruit trees most of my adult life, I read it when I was very young, and I realized I'd never thought hard enough what it meant that George Orwell, of all people, planted roses, cultivated roses, loved roses, gave a lot of time and attention to roses. And in that, there seemed to be an invitation to explore a lot of things that I'm really interested in about pleasure, beauty, joy, and their role in our political lives and uh, what we mostly focus on what politics are against or and a writer like george orwell we know very well is against authoritarianism propaganda lies uh fascism but what was orwell for what is the opposite of those things and it's not just that george orwell was a passionate gardener and nature lover but i think what he was for were lives in which there was room for pleasure beauty joy private pleasures, pleasures nobody had the right to supervise, control, tell you what they should be or shouldn't be. And that fits in very well with his work. But what was a beautiful shock to me, because I knew most of his books and essays pretty well, was when I actually started reading his garden diaries and letters, I found a very different man to the public image. The public image of Orwell is this grim, cynical, pessimistic, austere guy who seems to be miserable and thinks everybody else should be miserable. But the actual Orwell was constantly both taking pleasure in little things, you know, a proper mug of beer, a good pot of tea, the garden, his animals, the natural world, popular songs, children's books, etc. And he was also uh, defending those things. And so what he was for became really interesting. And then it let me read his work in a different way and find that even 1984 was a completely different book than I had ever imagined. It sounds like I convinced you too. And I had read 1984 as a teenager. I've read it many times. I thought I knew it. I read these diaries, which are really just garden journals today. You know, I picked <laughs> the stems off the cabbage and planted this and harvested that and put some manure on the, you know, on the soil. And, um, you know, and 1984, how does Winston Smith, the protagonist of the book, resist the regime of Big Brother? 
he briefly tries to overthrow the regime, which turns out to be a trap in which he achieves nothing but sending himself to the torture chamber. But the rest of it is he tries to have independent memory, independent thought, an independent life, to have sensuality, to live through direct and immediate experience. There's a wonderful sentence in 1984, the final command of the authorities was to not believe the evidence of your eyes and ears, something that's very Putin-esque and Trumpian. And so you can turn that inside out and say to trust the evidence of your eyes and ears is itself a form of resistance of forming a robust independent thinker who cannot be co-opted so easily by authoritarianism. And I think Orwell believed part of how you do that is by having these firsthand experiences with the senses, looking, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, you know, going out into the world and having an immediate experience. And so Winston does that and Orwell does that. And there's a way we can say pleasure, joy, beauty might keep you going, might be what allow you to also fight fascism, you know, and human rights violations and oppression. But also Orwell's arguing something else as well, that these things form the robust individual, the individual with a strong sense of self, a strong ability to form his or her own opinions, ideas, perceptions, to remember, to judge, to perceive. And that's the kind of person with the strength to resist a regime like the regime in 1984. And so he sees it as actually quite radical work, not just pleasure, and of course, not just what so many people on the left in his time and ours would say, you know, indulgence, distraction, superfluous activity, um, bourgeois, dis you know, there's this very funny moment I absolutely love where a woman writes into his left wing magazine to tell him that flowers are bourgeois. <laughs> I love it because there have been flowers on earth for tens of millions of years before there were human beings. Flowers were not bourgeois a hundred million years ago. And of course, flowering plants made the world we live in. They are the dominant kinds of species on earth. Everything we eat that doesn't come from fungus or the ocean pretty much is either a flowering plant or something that ate a flowering plant. You know, flowers are essential. So you know, which brings us back to nature, but also back to these questions of where do pleasure, beauty, and joy fit in? Where does the life of the senses fit into political life? How do we form people capable of resistance? And I think, finally, that's also a question about art. There's a kind of argument that art should just be propaganda to tell us what's good and what's bad and what to do. And I think Orwell, wrote plenty of it because he felt impelled to in the crises of his time. But he believed, I think, also that one of the things art could do, or certainly I believe, is to help form people capable of more complex thought and judgment, uh, these more resilient selves that can participate in more subtle and sophisticated ways in everyday life, people who can think for themselves, who can understand the world is not inscribed in black and white all the time that they, you know, understand complexity, understand nuance, understand ambivalence and ambiguity. And uh, so I think that in Orwell's Roses, there was room for a lot of questions and ideas. I think this is, you know, uh, Borges, he said that for every new book a writer writes, the other changes as well. So when you have a new book, uh, of Kafka, you see the others in a different light. So the complete work is always changing. And I feel the same way with your book here about Orwell, that it it highlights something that most of us were not, I don't know if we didn't have the capacity to see it, if we weren't just, but but it, it, it was always there. But there's an, another question which I'm curious about is, this sentence go through, It's your book is in seven parts, and it, it, each of them open with a sentence, in the spring, of 1936, a writer planted roses. So it was in 1936 that Orwell he planted these these roses. And when we, if you look at his books, you can see that all the major works 
they come after that. He planted these roses. How do you see this link between establishing this place and planting roses and, and his books? Four remarkable things happened for George Orwell in the year 1936. It's the year he truly becomes George Orwell. The first is that he accepted an assignment to report on the industrial north of England to look at unemployment, poverty, and the coal industry. And of course, the coal industry lets me make it a bit of a climate change um, business, since he sees how horrific and violent the fo fossil fuel extraction is for the miners and for the earth itself, how foul and black and poisonous the world around the mines is. So that's the first thing he does, and that really helps him become a real socialist, a person who really understands how destructive capitalism is, how exploitative, how intense the suffering is. The second thing that happens is his wonderful bohemian aunt, who's um, very left-wing, a suffragist partnered to a French anarchist, finds this little cottage that he as a very poor writer can afford to rent in the country, which would be the home he has longer than any other home in his life. And it's there he goes in March or the beginning of April of 1936 and plants a garden in preparation for another really important change in his life, marrying Eileen O'Shaughnessy, uh, this wonderful, brilliant, funny woman who would be his wife until she died in 1944 of botched surgery and so he's beginning the life he wants to living as making a living as a writer living in the country being a gardener because he's been a passionate gardener but only with allotment gardens and now he's growing a lot of his own food he's raising eggs with chickens to sell uh you know he's very intensely involved in the natural world of the garden, the, the birds, etc. And then the fourth thing that happens is he leaves all this to go to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War, which finishes in many ways his left-wing education because he goes to that war in December of 1936 and soon realizes it's not a two-sided war, as most of us has been, been told between the loyalists and the fascists, it's a three-sided war because the Western democracies or whatever you call Western Europe would not support Spain against Franco. And so they had to turn to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union turned it into a three-sided war where the Soviet loyalists in Spain were fighting the socialists, anarchists and unaffiliated communists, including the party Orwell was with. And so he saw the lies, the propaganda, the violence of Stalinism from that and became the great voice of anti-Stalinism as well. And so all these things happen um, in this incredible year. And it's really 1937 by he realizes what the year is, what's going on in Spain. But the decision to go to Spain that kind of completes his left-wing education you know all happens so that's where it all begins and uh, but even in spain orwell is noticing flowers and weather and animals and having these kind of very vivid first-hand descriptions as well as political analysis and describing you know what it feels like to be living in trenches and cold and hungry you know he's always interested in how very concrete and specific information can undermine what propaganda depends on, the tendency to think in simple airtight categories, everything is this way, everything is that way, everybody in this category is like this, everybody in that category is like that. And so he's always going back to the immediate experience because it complicates reality in ways that break out of simplistic political thinking and that's really important to him not and it's almost an anti-ideology because it's a kind of reality versus ideology if ideology is you know over you know simplification categorical thinking it's also i think like most of your books there there are ref reflections on writing as well and there are also reflections on on what beauty is in in, in orwell's writing and i think Everyone who is writing, they know the temptation of making sentences that make the world very simple. It's just a temptation that that 
that, that are in them. You all you write also in your memoir how how it was always a challenge for you to respect the complexity of the subject matter and and take your sentences in the in in ways that reflected what you were writing about and you say something about what beauty is in the style of of Orwell that I think is very interesting and maybe also a description of your own perception of that one thing that i often run across in a kind of depoliticized writing in the united states i don't know how it is in denmark is the idea that somehow ethics and aesthetics are two separate businesses and that there's big pieces of our lives that are not political. And that's a very kind of centrist, middle-class idea. I think if you're in a, a marginalized person, a category, you know, if you're straight, it's easy to believe your sexuality is apolitical. If you're gay, you know, your sexuality is political. And there's a way we treat it as though if you refuse to eat McDonald's hamburgers, that's a political choice. But eating McDonald's hamburgers isn't a political choice. Of course, both of them are political choices. So yeah, so I've been interested um, in the relationship between ethics and aesthetics. And of course, for this book with the roses, I got interested in what were Orwell's ideas of beauty. And of course, he loved the most obvious kinds of literal beauty. He really loved flowers a lot which is not what I expected from him. You read his diaries and journals and he's raising food, which is this very practical thing to do in a garden, especially when you're poor and can't afford to buy necessarily to buy good food. But he's every time he plants a garden, he plants flowers and he writes about them. He loves them. He, he tells talks about what's blooming in the garden. And um, but he's also interested in another kind of beauty you could call moral beauty and um, the beauty of heroic gestures, noble ideals of living according to your beliefs, of having moral integrity. And also, finally, I think a kind of beauty in language, language that language is a contract. I came to understand how in the way Orwell sees it, a contract between the speaker or the writer and who they're speaking to or writing for. Uh, good writing is an honest contract that delivers truthfulness. Um, it's trustworthy. It's like a well-made chair. It won't collapse under you. Good food that won't poison you. And that also, there's a kind of integrity in it. Uh, you know, you may not know what's true, but you'll at least say what you do, honestly, what you do and don't know, including that maybe you don't know what's true. And I was also interested, you know, in how important this is, because we live in a world full of things nowadays that look beautiful, but were made in hideous ways. I think that's what happened when Orwell went to see the coal mines, is he realized, and he writes, how easy it would be to spend your whole life never thinking of where the coal, and England then ran on coal, comes from. And we live in a world now that's even worse than that. You know, your computer, your phone, your clothes, your food. So many of these things come from exploitation of the earth and workers. And it's so easy to not know where they come from. And uh, so there's a kind of disintegration of the integrity of things that must have existed in the world our ancestors lived in hundreds of years ago, where whatever the conditions things were produced under, at least you understood what, you know, where did your food come from? Where, where did your clothing come from? Where did your fuel come from? How was your house built? Who did the work? How did, how did these things run? And so Orwell was interested in all that, in that clarity and truthfulness and understanding the system as a kind of aesthetic that's ethical as well, a kind of beauty in what we do with language and a kind of ugliness also in the abuses of language that were sometimes oversimplification, sometimes lies, and sometimes often in academics and politics using very evasive language to, dis to avoid describing the brutality of what was being done to dress it up and pretend it was something other than what it was. I was thinking when I read Orwell's version about World Cup in Qatar, you know, because the thing about this event is that 
the violence that produced this public good, which is football or soccer, as we call it here, is all of a sudden evident. You cannot abstract from it. We're used to that. We see these beautiful roses and then you go to Colombia and see how many of them are produced in absolutely horrific condition. But the special thing about Qatar is that now everybody knows about the violence surrounding uh, the scene. Yeah, no, it's very weird having the World Cup in Qatar, the G20 in Bali as part of Indonesia, and the climate summit in Egypt. You'd think there were countries that weren't so oppressive. Um, they could choose to, you know, hold these things in. And all of them have exposed some of that. Yeah, I, I, you think it looks like Qatar thought this would be a great public relations. Yeah. I think it must have backfired in a very expensive way. Not that I follow football much. Something that I find very, very interesting in your work and inspiring is that you really believe in the capacity of ideas to change something, that that cultural changes to a certain extent precede political changes, and you can make cultural changes through writing. And I love when I love reading it when I when you read about the power of ideas and how they can run it. Sometimes I have the feeling myself that we're exchanging ideas and it's disconnected from the world drama. But I know that there are examples of ideas influencing the world. But but could you explain this belief in in the, the aspect of, of ideas, which is also linked to what we were talking about before, about the political potential of writing? Yeah, I really only became convinced of it when I saw it in action my formative experiences include watching the East Bloc liberate itself mostly through nonviolent direct action from Soviet domination and their own authoritarian regimes, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the liberation of Czechoslovakia, Poland, East Germany, you know, and Hungary, some of the other countries in 1989. Watch Native Americans change the meaning of the quincentennial, the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the Americas, the Zapatista uprising, seeing how ideas can change the world. And maybe one of the clear examples I can give is in this country, the United States, it's very easy if you have a short timeline and a simplistic view of how change happens to think the US Supreme Court gave you know, gave the country marriage equality in 2015. But what the Supreme Court did was the end of a very long process. You know, if you regard it in isolation, you'll see you'll see them as very powerful and maybe as somehow generously handing something down. The reality of it is that movements to make gay and lesbian, trans people, non-heterosexual people, non-heteronormative people visible and get give them rights had been happening for decades and the battle for marriage equality was a next step of this thing that goes back in this country to the 1950s proud to say a lot of it in san francisco uh and um you know and so how did so the supreme court had taken very different positions not long before in a sense, they judged that now marriage equality was a normal way to think about marriage. But I think because the world had changed so much, two things had changed it. One of which is millions of people had come out of the closet to say, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm not straight, I'm your friend, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your co-worker, your teacher. And another thing was the feminist movement had changed the nature of marriage itself. And the reason the right is so opposed to marriage rights for same-sex marriage is because they want marriage to be a hierarchical institution between a submissive woman and a dominant man. If a marriage can be between two women and two men, that means marriage can be between equals and marriage is what the two people in that arrangement make of it. Because I And I came up with that idea when I was like, why do they keep saying this is threatening to marriage? And I was like, oh, you know, let's say Ingrid and Svetlana getting married doesn't directly threaten these people's marriage. But if wives in conservative, the conservative world are saying, oh, marriage can be equal, marriage can be negotiated, marriage doesn't have to involve surrendering your rights and control. 
and being bossed around, that's a direct threat. So I see these processes happening in so many different ways. I see, and you know, I was talking to a climate activist last night, the climate movement has convinced the majority of people, even in the United States with so much fossil fuel propaganda, that the climate crisis is real, it's urgent, and we should do something about it. Every battle, as the great activist Adrian Marie Brown says, is an imagination battle. And, uh, you know, every war is a war against imagination. And so changing how people imagine the world, you can see also with the abortion and marriage equality referendums in Ireland, changing how people imagine the world changes what's possible. You still need legislation, you still need the practical change, but the practical change can't happen until you've made the imaginative change. So ideas matter, and they can't stay in books, they can't stay in academic conversations, they can't stay in small groups if they're going to matter, but they often begin in the shadows and the margins with a small group of people. There's a very famous saying in English that people attribute to Gandhi, and he didn't say it, we don't know quite where it came from, but they said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And uh, it's always can be more complicated than that. With climate, we see, then they fight you, then they pretend to be on your side, but try and delay and distract from the real climate solutions of ending the age of fossil fuels. But there is this trajectory where ideas that are considered wild, outrageous, extreme, inconceivable, crazy things like ending slavery, women voting, women having bodily you know, self-jurisdiction, decriminalizing being gay and lesbian, at, um, you know, not using pesticides on everything all the time, at, uh, you know, um, ideas come in and become, on so many of these ideas, people forget their histories and just think, oh, but we've always looked at the world that way, <laughs> you know had idea revolutions. I think so much hopelessness comes from amnesia of not seeing that we live in a world that's constantly changing, both for the better and the worse, and that changes for the better come from these ideas, from grassroots organizing, from popular movements, from civil society so often. I feel that's been part of your work to also remind younger generations of the battles that, that have actually been won that there's not a history of just linear progress, but battles have been won, so it makes sense to keep going. But every time a battle is won, it seems like it's the new starting point and you take it for granted. Of course, people would say, a lot of people would say, because we've been, been discussing hope in the dark a lot here, that that in the realm of human affairs, that that we know that that in the dark things are happening that will help us, and we don't see the new before, It's in the light, so we should always trust that people that we don't know yet are working with ideas and contributing, and we're part of a society, and we only see a little bit of it that's in that's in the light. But then, then some would also say, well, the problem is that that nature is working so fast against us, and nature in this very old-fashioned way of, of putting it. But you know that you have these tipping points, you have these feedback loops, you have these mechanisms working working against us so so or to put it like bill kippen we're winning so slowly that that it's a sure method of losing you have a new project out and a book that comes out in the spring next year which called uh, not too late could you tell us a little bit about what is it that's not too late my wonderful friend thelma young lutuna tabua and i realized in 2020 we had a similar vision that in the English speaking world, a lot of climate grief, despair, defeatism was based on bad frameworks and bad, uh, bad facts. Um, people assuming that it is too late, that we don't have the solutions, that we don't know what to do, that nobody cares, that nobody's doing anything, that we haven't made any progress. None of those things are true. I absolutely agree with Bill, who I've been working with for 15 years. We are in a very precarious situation and it's getting steadily worse. 
I would say it's not nature. Nature is constantly trying to do her best. Nature sequesters most of the carbon we pump out into the world, but she can't sequester it as fast as we pump it out. You know, we need to stop pumping it out. You know, when we just leave the natural world alone, it so often recovers. Animals come back when we stop killing or poisoning them. You know, habitats come back when we stop cutting them down so often. You know, it's very late in the game of trying to do something about the climate crisis, but it's not too late. And that's what we wanted to convey. You know, when you talk to people who are in very deep, the scientists and organizers, they know that what we do now matters, that every tenth of a degree matters, that even as my friend Jacqueline Gill, a scientist and paleoecologist says, 1.5 degrees is not a cliff we fall off, you know. And so it's absolutely worth doing the things that we're doing and trying to get more people to do them. It's absolutely worth continuing to push. We've also seen tipping points for the climate movement. The U.S. government under Biden is willing to do things that, you know, the Obama administration, never mind the Trump administration, wasn't ready to do. California just upped its climate goals uh, today. Uh, you know, it was in the newspaper this morning. And, um, you know, a lot is happening and the solutions keep getting better, cheaper, more efficient. And so hope for me is not optimism. Optimism is the idea that everything will be fine no matter what which of course means we don't have to do anything. This wonderful future is being delivered like, like by Santa Claus. We just have to sit there and wait. And optimism is only the flip side of pessimism, which also says we know exactly what the future holds and there's nothing we can do about it. And hope for me is really very much about uncertainty. We don't know what the future holds, but we can participate in trying to decide what the future will be. We see so many unanticipated things. We see the emergence of people like Greta Thunberg, movements like the Sunrise Movements in the US, um, the growth of climate movements globally, the incredible energy revolution that I don't think is often described as this. You know, if we were talking 20, 25 years ago, you, you could say to me, and I'd have to agree, but we don't have any alternative to fossil fuel. <laughs> Wind and sun were so expensive and so inefficient and inadequate. We've had an incredible technological revolution that's also an economic revolution. Sun and wind are cheaper than fossil fuel. We will inevitably make the transition. The question is making it fast enough to, you know, try and keep the temperature down globally. So that's kind of what hope for me looks like. And not, not too late, we're on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, um, almost every day with good news. We have a website and then we'll have a book in April with a bunch of wonderful uh, contributors, organizers, climate scientists, people talking about emotions and kind of inner life in relationship to climate, people who are visionary about the future like Adrian Marie Brown. And we intended to make a broad, readable book for a lot of, you know, that will make sense for teenagers, college students, for younger people who are not specialists and experts and uh, who need the, the overview. Because I feel like as somebody who's very deep in the climate world, there's all these wonderful conversations going on. But even, even after all these years in it, I can't follow all of them. You have, you know, talk, I have friends talking about the negotiations who've been going to the, you know, the COP conferences for decades, who know all this specialized lingo. I know people who know all about, you know, the technologies. I know people who know all about the science. And, you know, you can't expect somebody who's 17 to be hmm. up on all that. So we also want to make the information really not simplistic, but accessible. So yeah, so it's really um, hope in the dark for climate, you know, and with many voices, well, hope in the dark was very much my voice, but there's a lot of people in line with us and we brought them in. And we're very, very grateful for that. It's a wonderful project. We'll share the website in the notes for the podcast. 
I want to end this by asking you to read a piece of your writing for us, a piece that I chose uh, that you gave me the permission to choose because you are a writer and a unique writer with a unique voice. And this piece is about finding a, a voice. And so I want to ask you to read that up as an ending. Thank you so much. And it's from this book, Recollections of My Non-Existence. And I wrote, changing who has a voice with all its power and attributes doesn't fix everything but it changes the rules, notably the rules about what stories will be told and heard and who decides. One of the measures of this change is the many cases that were ignored, disbelieved, dismissed, or found in favor of the perpetrator years ago that have had a different outcome in the present because the women or children who testified have more audibility, credibility, and consequence now than they did before. The impact of this epochal shift that will be hardest to measure will be all the crimes that won't happen because the rules have changed. Behind that change are transformations in whose rights matter and whose voice will be heard and who decides. Amplifying and reinforcing those voices and furthering that change was one of the tasks to which I put the voice I'd gained as a writer and seeing that what I and others wrote and said was helping to change the world was satisfying in many ways to me as a writer and a survivor, and I might add an activist. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much for taking your time, Rebecca Solnit. Thank you for your work and your inspiration. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Det var så min samtale med Rebecca Solnit. Jeg kan gentage nogle af de titler, som vi taler om. Hope in the Dark, Untold Stories, Wild Possibilities. Men Explain Things to Me, og det sidste citat, som hun selv læste op, kom fra Recollections of My Non-Existence, a memoir fra 2020. Den bog, som det meste af samtalen drejer sig om, er hendes helt nye bog, som hedder Orwell's Roses. De kan alle sammen anbefales. I næste uge skal vi tale med en, der faktisk også er inspireret af Rebecca Solnit, men tager det et lidt andet sted hen. Det er vækstkritikeren Jason Hickel, som blev et globalt navn, da han skrev bogen Less is More, som blev en slags... Manifest for hele antivækstbevægelsen. Vi taler med ham om, hvorfor antivækst er nødvendigt, og hvorfor det samtidig også er umuligt, og hvordan han klarer alle de dilemmaer, der er omkring det, som vi mildstalt har tumlet meget med her på Dagbladet Information. Grunden til alt det her hænger sammen, det er Anne Pilegaard Petersen, som har redigeret og sat det hele sammen endnu en gang. Tak til Anne. Tak til alle jer for, at I lyttede med. Tak for alle jeres gode forslag, jeres entusiasme og jeres tålmodighed med de forskellige vilde tænkere, vi kaster i hovedet på jer. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.